As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Hi, I'm Mel McLaughlin. Welcome to No Turning Back, the Tokyo 2020 podcast. It's been a long five-year wait, but the Tokyo Olympic and Paralympic Games are finally happening and there is no turning back now. In this series, I'll be meeting some of the athletes going for gold in Tokyo and sharing their stories. In this episode, not many athletes get to four Paralympics, let alone before they turn 30. Maddie Di Rosario really is the wonder woman of the Paralympic team. From racing the gruelling marathon to gracing magazine covers, Maddie makes it all look effortless and glamorous. Maddie, thanks so much for chatting to us, especially at this time. And things are getting very serious. You're off to your fourth Paralympic Games. How does that sit with you? Obviously, you are so young for your first one. It's honestly, it's strange to think about. Like, I, I feel like I've, I've been in this sport for, for so long, for, for half my life now at you know on, on national teams and and it's weird to think of it as, as as a fourth games and I think that each one doesn't get less nerve-wracking I think as I got older I thought I would get more used to it more familiar with what that would feel like but I think when you pull on the green and gold at a games it's so different from anything else that you do and that that feeling I think in my experience has has not changed since I was 14. Half your life that's a sobering real that's yeah I don't know how many people could say that. Yeah I was thinking of this the other day because I, I was 14 and in Beijing. What and did I'm, you think when you were 14 and you went over? It was the most overwhelming experience yeah. of, of my life. I think still, I, I so vividly remember walking into the bird's nest for the opening ceremony. It's, it's the only opening ceremony at a game that I've actually been to. And I'm so glad that I did, that I got that experience. But I think being there amongst, you know, 400, you know, of, of your family, basically at that point and, and kind of walking into that stage and then knowing that that's where you're going to be racing for the games. And that's, I think, one of the cool things about athletics is where you walk out the opening ceremonies where you'll be competing for those games. And that's quite a cool experience. And I'm walking out into this stadium with the entire Australian team and you couldn't see anything. It was just the flashing lights of cameras that you mm. kind of see in those dramatic scenes in movies. I never think you'll experience in, in real life. And I just remember being overwhelmed by every single part of that experience, the, the dining hall, the village, all of that. But every moment I was on the track was, was so intense and so extreme. And I think getting to share that with my teammates in, in the relay kind of at the end there was a really cool experience as well. I think getting to win a medal on that track with, with three of my teammates was, was unreal. Yeah, well, you've been so successful at, at the three Paralympic Games so far with those, the silver medals. Do you have a favourite Olympic Games? My favourite? Oh, that's a hard one. They're all so different and they've all been 
Rio was my most successful games by far as an individual athlete. And I also, I think, even the events that I didn't medal in, that the 5,000 that I raced in Rio is one of the best races I've ever run in my life. And everything I had in me on the day, I, I gave, and that got me a fourth place, and that was the best I was going to do. But tactically, I ran the best possible race that I, that I could have run. And so I, I love that moment, that experience. But London as a Games was unreal. That was the most incredible, I think, Games as, as a whole. But it was also my worst performances. I was devastated with how I performed in London. And then kind of Beijing holds a completely separate space for me. So I, I wouldn't be able to pick a favourite. They've all been so different. What about London? Um, you know, all the, I was there for the Olympic side of things. But I remember with the, for the Paralympics, yeah, my, my family's English over there. They all said that there was nothing like the Paralympic Games and the feeling around town. It was way better. And it was already great for the Olympics, but way better for, for some reason. I think that there is this energy that comes with the Paralympics. I've, I've been on able-bodied teams, mixed teams and, and Paralympic teams. And the energy at all three is very different. And I'm incredibly biased when I say this, but the Paralympic is, is my favourite. I think there is... I don't know. I, I, I think there is a sense of, of community and family. And I think uh, there's a, an additional layer of purpose that I think comes with the Paralympic Games. I think that we're all incredibly aware that sport is one of the biggest platforms that people with disabilities are ever able to get at the moment. And it's frustrating that that is how it works. But I think we're all very aware of that. And so I think we're not with a selfishly to race and and give everything out there on the track or the, or the road or, or whatever it is but I think there's also this understanding that you are able to use that small moment in the spotlight to make a very very big impact and I know that every single one of us take that responsibility incredibly seriously and do everything we can with that so I think there is this kind of community and purpose that comes with that and I, I love that about my Paralympic family I I hate that we have to do that I I, I don't love that that's the situation that we all find ourselves in. I wish that my teammates could just be athletes selfishly with no responsibility um, kind of applied to that. But I love that every single one of them grabs onto with both hands and wants to do everything they can with that platform. Well, having someone like you as a spokesperson the way you are and speaking the way you do, that I know you're big on, you know, what's you're wanting to normalise and, and what not to normalise. And that's really important, isn't it? Yes, I think that normalizing is at the heart of all of it easing that discomfort that we want to feel around disability is huge and sport is one of the most pervasive industries that we have I think sport and the arts the two huge ones and so we don't have many opportunities where where we where we see people with disabilities as something other than that identity I think we want to apply it no matter what that person is doing and that's quite a dehumanizing lens that we view mm people through whereas sport because it's so impactful and we understand that we can empathize that experience because we've all participated in sport on some level we kind of see right through disability quicker than we do with most other things so I think sport has this opportunity to have quite a significant impact and and again I definitely train compete and race very selfishly but I'm aware of what I want to do with my platform that I am afforded because because of sport and yeah I think a lot of us do take that very seriously yeah as you say with a big beautiful smile on your face but yeah it's a very serious matter I think there's nothing like the Paralympics of anything in the world nothing highlights more that it's more than just sport just the meaning of you know, I don't think you see more tears than you do in the stands or at home or goosebumps than watching the Paralympic Games and yeah. I don't mean that in any form of condescending way. No. It's people who just look, look 
at what I, anyone can do. Yeah, and I think that we there are moments where we embrace everyone from every single corner of our community and we do it on every level throughout our days always. And I think Paralympic Games is a moment where we stop and we see that. And I think that, you know, how how we've viewed disability has changed so much and I think it's it's it can be so relatable I think obviously disability is quite an obvious uh mold that you don't fit into I think whether it's it's you know physically societally environmentally like I think you you're forced to kind of recognize that I think we all see parts of ourselves in not 100% fitting in and I think so often every single person will change who they are to try and fit the mold that society creates for us and that's just not possible as a person with a disability because no matter how much you change yourself it's never going to be enough to fit the mold it's not physically possible so I think a lot of people with disabilities and we we see it at the Paralympics is just a a bunch of humans just rewriting the entire narrative and I think that kind of gives us such an insight of how to do that as individuals whether we belong to any minority group or whichever minority group it is that we belong to we kind of see that in action at a Paralympic Games and and we see it through the lens of sport which is incredible but I think we can apply that to every single part of our lives and I think that's one of the reasons I think we love the Paralympics so much is we see I think the entire spectrum of, of humanity kind of mm. in, in one space for the course of 10 days. I loved hearing um, obviously everyone but led by Kurt Fernley just talking about this mob how everyone loves being part of this the mob. Mm. It is. It's five years ago now. Yeah, it's a family, and I, and that's been one of the hardest parts about the last eighteen months. Is I'm so used to seeing them so often throughout, and you're kind of just surrounded by people who I think have this. There's a sense of like forced intimacy that happens <laughs> at a Paralympics where you're all at your most stressed, your most anxious, your most vulnerable, surrounded by people sharing that exact same experience. And so I think you bond pretty hard with these people, whether you've met them before or not. And I think that there is definitely a sense of, of family about that. And whether you're a current athlete, former athlete, staff, whatever it is, I don't think that goes away. I know like our retired athletes are still 100% a part of that family. And there is definitely a sense of that in the Paralympic family. I read an article, I think I remember it's from years ago and you talking about, um, I think it was after going to a Paralympic Games, I'm not sure which one, where you fully appreciated your body and you talked about having the perfect body and the reasons why it's perfect. I think that's, that's such a, a big, big one um, because I think it's something that we all struggle with as, as humans. And I, everyone does, yeah. Every single person. And I, I empathize particularly young girls. I think that's such a, <laughs> it's, it's huge. It's, and there's just so much pressure on how you're meant to present. And again, it falls into that idea of as soon as I think you're a girl or a woman, that becomes quite a large part of your identity, whether you want it to be or not. And that's an impossible mold to fit because it doesn't fit any person. And so I think for me as a girl growing up with a disability, you're in a body that's never going to be society's idea of perfect. And while you don't necessarily logically believe that as a human, as a person, you still internalize everything that you've ever seen or heard or or, or believed. And I, that that's so hard to shake. And I was able to shake that because of sport. I think once you become an athlete, there is this respect that you have to have for your body. If you want it to achieve everything that you need it to, you're going to be putting it through the most ridiculous life and you're going to be demanding so much of it and expecting so much of it and I think if you actually want to be able to to do that you need to also be nurturing and respecting and looking after it and those two things don't work together I think deciding you hate your body as a young girl for whatever reason doesn't work with sport and I have the privilege of using sport to overcome that 
barrier that I had around myself. And we don't all have sport to be able to do that. And it's kind of recognizing that your body is, is I fell in love with my body because of what it could do for me. But I think if the only thing that your body does is provide a home, then that's enough as well. And we don't give our bodies enough credit for that. So I think body image is a huge obstacle for so many of us because we expect too much of it. Our body is our home and that's all it needs to be. People are just never going to be happy in that no. regard. It seems we're never happy. I, I loved something where you said somewhere where, you know, your upper body and how strong it is and you saw a photo of your back and said, yeah, my back looks good. <laughs> It's one part of myself that I never actually see. And so I think when, when you see those those photos, those campaigns, I think it's it almost doesn't feel like yours because you never actually see it. And, and I am proud of everything that my body has, has been able to do. And I can't believe you found that quote. That's so embarrassing. It's a good one. No, because we do, you're like, oh, my arm looks good there. Normally I hate, well, for me, I'm like, I don't like my arms. Oh, looks all right there. No, exactly. <laughs> yeah. I think, we, yeah, we 100% do. Right. Yeah. Um, do you consider yourself, just further to that, do you consider yourself a trailblazer? You are, but do you, are you aware that you're a trailblazer for, for many reasons? I think I know that I try and use every opportunity I have in the spotlight to do the best I possibly can. And I think you don't necessarily see the impact that you have while you're in that space doing it because it feels like a bit of an uphill. Um, I think it never feels like you're going to be able to do enough. Like I, I would... I would love to, to see us get to a point where young kids with disabilities don't have to justify the space that they take up. And I think it takes us so long to get to a point where we choose to not justify. And it's a, it's a decision that we make. And I was only able to do it through, through very specific circumstances through sport and getting to kind of shed that identity that I thought was going to be my life and become everything and, and anything that I wanted to be an entire person who I am. And that didn't happen for me until my late teens, early 20s. And I know people that it's so much later than that and some people who are never able to do that because we're so, I think, entrenched in, in, in stigma. And I would love to see a point where we don't have to have my, I don't want my community to have to constantly be going through that. I would love young boys and girls with disabilities to grow up believing that they're an entire human. They don't have to lean into that stigma and be anything and everything they want to be and, and not just what they've been shaped to be and, and led to believe. So obviously, you know, you're inspirational with what you do as an athlete. But, you know, going back to the uh, the great back, for example, I don't know anyone that takes a better photo than you, can oh I just God. say, if you just look at all, all the stuff that you do. So you've got some sponsorships as well. For, oh, well you're very beautiful. I don't want to get creepy. Is that creepy? <laughs> I don't know. No, it's true. And, and it's, you know, Under Armour, for example, seeing you in, that, in those photo shoots, for example, what sort of feedback do you get? Because obviously anyone can wear... Under Armour, but what feedback do you get as to what that means to people? Uh, you, you talk about this community. Mm. I think that big brands with bigger platforms than the individual is ever going to have, have the capacity to amplify voices, brighten that spotlight, lift up that platform. And Under Armour has done that for me. And they've also allowed me to kind of take the lead on what I want that to, to look like, which I think is so important. And there is this kind of balance you want to strike where you want to show that I am in a wheelchair that you know my racing chair and, and all you want to 
show the disability because that's it's a part of who and I you look, am. You look fierce Thank as well, you. like in, yeah, in the best possible way. <laughs> but you want to show all of that. You want to show an entire person because I think we often either shy away completely from disability or we lean into it as an entire identity. And it's that it's that balance you you have to strike because it's it's a big part of who I am. And I'm incredibly proud of of who I am as a woman with a disability. And so I want all of that showcased. I think. It's the difference between representation and visibility. I think representation is, it's a little tokenistic. I think we've all dealt with it as women. Mm. I think we all deal with it no matter what minority we belong to. That is a whole other chat. Oh, it's a whole (laughs) other chat. But I think that we do this thing where if you're then a representation capacity, it's tokenistic and your entire identity becomes who you're representing, the entire community representing. And that's not fair on the individual and it's not fair on the community because they're kind of seeing a person representing them who they look like and all they're seeing is that is their entire identity and therefore that's my entire identity. Whereas visibility is showing a person all of their facets and all of their humanity and accepting all of it. And so you're doing two things. You're showing 20% of us with disabilities that they can be an entire person and not just a, not their entire identity reduced to the stigma of disability. You're showing the 80% an entire person as well. And we're so shaped by what surrounds us. As the 20%, we need that 80% to see us in all of our facets. And so we need it in the media. We need it, you know, as bright as possible. And and brands like Under Armour are the ones that are able to make that change. And I love that everyone who I work with leans into that so strongly and, and lets myself or whoever they're working with really shape that narrative. And so I would not be able to have the impact that I'm able to have through sport without that kind of support. So I'm unbelievably grateful for it. What about Barbie? Talk to me about Barbie. That's still the most <laughs> surreal. Uh, it's, I don't even know how to, it's been a year now and I, more than a year, and I, I still don't know how to wrap my head around. That's the, the highest compliment I've ever been paid, I think. Explain what life. happened. I... You're a Barbie. I'm a Barbie doll. <laughs> I, I have the Barbie doll of myself in my house. It feels strange to, to see that every day. Um, so Barbie makes a Shiro doll every year where they pick one woman and make a one-of-a-kind doll in, in her image. And it's not just necessarily about what she's achieved in her professional industry, but about the impact that she's able to have and, and the alignment of, of values. And so, the I mean, the doll is a very cool part of it. Um, <laughs> But it's kind of the, the whole story and how, again, how big that platform that Barbie has is to kind of want to help you tell your story. And through so many different um, outlets as well, it was kind of used in so many different spaces that had quite a significant reach. And then to kind of, you know, and it's the highest compliment because I, I know the women athletes in Australia and I know the options that, that Barbie had. And so to be chosen, I still can't wrap my head around that is incredibly flattering but to be able to the fact that a brand chose an athlete with a disability as the the athlete that they wanted to embody sport in Australia in in 2020 is is significant just on its own the fact it's enormous it's enormous and and I love that that happened and Barbie globally had multiple Paralympic athletes in the Shiro campaign for 2020 and that's that's huge that's so impactful and it's such an authentically diverse brand which is you know of something I, I align with with so heavily and so I think to to again get to kind of speak directly to to young girls I think is is huge because that's where that formation starts and that kind of sense of identity and we we lose our identity so young I think as girls and so to kind of have any impact on that is I mean that's all any of us really want to do it's exhausting isn't it it's just, it is it's a very heavy and very true 
point that you raise. But okay, further to that, Cosmo Sportswoman of the Year as well, a couple of years ago. It's getting so uncomfortable. I know, oh, isn't it? Isn't it? I'd hate this in reverse. No, actually, I'd love it just quietly. Yeah. Uh, that was also an incredibly high honour because that was a public vote mm. um, as well, which I think was one of the coolest parts about about that, I think, to... And I mean, arguably that was the best year I've had as an athlete. That was after Com Games yeah. and, and London Marathon. And um, so to kind of wrap the year up with, with that it was huge. I think that, I mean, yeah, I think, the, again, the public voting on that makes, that means so much more to me than if it was kind of just done with anything else. Because I think that's one of the trickiest things to, um, I think, uh, not deal with, that seems harsh, but kind of make peace with it is how you're still perceived and so I think to be perceived by the public as an athlete and Cosmos athlete of the year is pretty significant so yeah no that that's pretty special to me as well and I didn't just bring that up so I could link that to when you came in here we talked about how we may know each other and you just <laughs> casually said you say it because that we've been invoked together yeah yeah thank you I love I'm glad this. you said it because oh, I would never have brought that up <laughs> but it's funny that we both had the same thing it was a, a special that they did on I guess sports I don't know. Women in sport, well, yeah. I, oh, it's obviously not athletes because I was there. So, but yeah, women in sport. And you and I both said we both had the same thought, what are we doing in there? Isn't 100%. that funny? That's just how we feel. I think you just immerse yourself in, 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 in work and we do it because we love it and you kind of just do it. And so when I think these, I think recognitions kind of come along, it's kind of jarring because you're kind of just yeah. trying to do the best you can. It's folk. I know. <laughs> I know. So I'm just laughing thinking about it in hindsight, yeah. You just casually brushed over 2018. Oh, blah, blah, blah. It was my best year. Oh, yeah, just gold at the Commonwealth Games. And oh, then I just, you know, ducked over to London and, and won that marathon as well. So um, not much in that year. Um, let's go Gold Coast first. Mm-hmm. That experience, um, I, I was lucky enough to be up there and, you know, just experience, you know, the buzz and everything. And, uh, you know, the, what everyone said was they just loved how, I don't know how you feel, you know, in, how inclusive it was. Mm. Everyone was part of it. And, and I think a lot of people learnt from that as well. Did you get, did you feel that way? Absolutely. And I think that, I think that we, we love Paralympic sport when we see it. It's hard not to. And I think that there are so many individuals that, that we fall in love with every time we watch it. The personalities like that, again, I'm very biased, but the personalities of my teammates like stand out. They're incredible humans that you want to invest in, follow their journeys. And I think to see that at a, at a comm games, at a home comm games, really kind of allow people kind of an insight into, into our sport and, and, and who we are. And I think that going forward, we have the comm, I hear quite a bit, like why aren't the Paralympics and the Olympics combined events like mm. they are at comm games. And the reality is at comm games, they're not truly combined we kind of have a couple of events. So I'll race four events at the Paralympic Games. Two of my events were available at Commonwealth Games and they were the only uh, two wheelchair racing events. So there is so much more than just what we got to see. And it really is just kind of a, a showcase. And if people watch that and fall in love with it, I want them to watch the Paralympics because you can, it's so readily available and, and you'll see so much more of all of that. And it's not about combining the two because it's a logistical impossibility. Mm. It would be... Yeah absolutely impossible but you can watch and invest in 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 both just as easily and and that's kind of what what i want to see is is you know angie ballard was second in that 1500 at commonwealth games and and she's the former 400 800 meter world record holder we didn't get to see all of her best events because they weren't available you can see her best events at a Paralympics. you can see every single australian athlete 
in their absolute best events, in their element. And, and I want the Australian public to, to get to experience that because it's, I mean, it, it's something, it, it's special. And I think you'll, you'll fall in love with the sport, with the team, with, with everything. That gold medal, that experience, what do you remember of that, that day? It was very hot, at least most of the time from memory. Yeah. And the marathon particularly was like really one of the hot. warmest yeah. ones we've had. Um, that, I mean, that works well for I think most Australians so I think yeah. we have a bit of a bit of a benefit um with that but I don't remember the actual 1500 I remember crying on the bus on the way to the track I remember being so overwhelmed on the way to the, to track. the track I wasn't even there yet I'd I was in okay so I was in in the village still in our apartment and I was trying to get ready and I was crying because I was so anxious I think I put so much pressure on myself to not just make the podium I I I'd never gone into a race knowing that the only result I'd be happy with was winning it. I, that was a first for me. But I, I don't think I'd verbalise that at that point. But I knew that at those Commonwealth Games, I wanted to win both the 500 and the marathon. And that's all well and good when you're six months out planning it. When it becomes the, the day of to actually do that, that pressure is enormous. So I was crying. And we had a really young athlete. It was the first Australian team ever. And I was obviously a senior on the team. And so she was like, I don't know how to process this. I'm like, I don't know how to process this. If that helps, this is, this is your future. Um, so I thought, and both of my teammates who were also racing the 15, we're having Don't you they were crying? No, they were me crying. They had to race as well. And I'm just really serious for everyone. And I remember getting on the bus and um, I don't mean to laugh, but it's a bit funny it's so in hindsight. Funny. Yeah. Oh my god! At the time, even at the time, I was like, I recognise this is funny, but I'm having a really hard time. And, oh god! <laughs> and I remember getting the youngsters the... are going, "You're supposed to fix me." I know, yeah. and I'm like, "This is what it looks like." Um, and I remember getting on the bus to get to the track, and I, one of the brands that I work with, had put um, my face on the buses, and I drove past this, and the pressure that I, I've been avoiding any kind of all of that. Yeah. Um, but obviously you have to see it a bit, but your face drives past you on a bus. And I remember starting to cry on the bus again. When you saw your... F- yep. <laughs> yep. Which is a whole different level of narcissism, And they I guess. just calmed you down and you're off again. <laughs> but then the moment it's the gun went... It's not narcissism, is it? I mean, if you it's see your... If, I don't know, man. Like, it's, I don't know how... Well, to, most people don't cry when they... Well, that's... Yeah. <laughs> it's jarring. And I remember... Yeah. But once the no, it's incredible, gun went, yeah. I remember just feeling completely calm. And the minute that I, it's time to race, like I know exactly what I'm doing and how to race. And there's this kind of silence that happens and you kind of just start moving through the motions. And, and I think your body kind of just switches to knowing what it has to do and kind of just going through that process. And, and I remember that kind of silence, the whole 1500 and then crossing the line. And it was the mo- so surreal because like the sound kind of just came flooding back. And I think doing that in a, in a stadium of Australians was nothing like anything I've ever experienced before. And I think when we travel, you put on the green and gold and, and you know that you have an entire nation backing you, but you don't have a visual to accompany that. And so I think one of the coolest things I now have when I travel to race is I do have that I think you know I raced at a world's the following year in in Dubai and I think you're in the green and gold and and you kind of have that sense of you're representing something bigger than yourself and I know what that would feel like to be surrounded by that which makes that whole experience so much more special so I'm so grateful for that experience not just for the opportunity at the time but I think what that means to me going forward. I think, I don't know if it was, it might have been after this race, you posted a photo and you kind of, you've got your arm over your, your I think your forehead, and you said, mum asked if I was dabbing, and you're like, I'm crying, woman. Yes! 
My mum is like, she's on my social media just commenting like slightly shady stuff all the time, which I (laughs) love, (laughs) but it's pretty nonstop. And that was one of them. She was there in the stadium when that happened. She knows I was crying and that's still her little social media input. I'm like, yeah, no, she's amusing herself. hundred percent. Love it. Okay, and then going over to London, winning the marathon, as we said, pretty decent 2018 for you. What about that experience? Did you cry before that race or were you all good? I was, I was better by then. <laughs> that, was, that was a shock. I think going back into that race, I, wasn't, I definitely wasn't expecting to win. And since then, that's the only major that I've, that I've won. I've managed to kind of find myself on the podium um, a few times. It must um, have been a huge thrill. It's yeah. so prestigious. Yeah. yeah. And, and I think that was also in like a kind of strange, I guess, turn of events. That's the first marathon I ever did in 2013. Like London Marathon was the first marathon that I raced. And so for it to be the first one that, that I won five years later was, was really cool. And I actually, full disclosure, only won it because I wasn't familiar with the course. So it, it's quite a flat course. Everyone stays together throughout the marathon. So we kind of ended up with six of us in a sprint finish and my goal going in was I wanted to make top five I thought I was in a you know physical space to be able to to do that and it was a hugely competitive field and coming in with like about only a kilometer to go there were six of us still together and I was like all I have to do is like beat one person and I can you know reach that, that goal that I'd set and I remember kind of thinking like who should I try and you know who is this one person and they give you a countdown once it's a kilometre to go, so 900 metres, 800 metres. And I, I don't have a good short sprint. I kind of need to really build up and do quite a long kick. And the last part of London Marathon is quite... Uh, there's a, like a bunch of 90-degree turns, basically. And so I didn't realise that there was kind of this unwritten thing, unspoken thing, that you kind of wait until the last kind of straightaway to kind of really start that final sprint. And I wasn't familiar enough with the course to know there were that many more turns coming up that that was kind of what everyone else was was planning on doing and so when I saw the 600 meters to go kind of marker I knew that I had to go because that's kind of usually my my indication to myself that that that's kind of the sprint that I need so I kind of just put my head down and went a really small gap opened up um, on the inside of one of the turns and I and I took it and I and I managed to hold it and it was a huge surprise to, to me I know it was a surprise to everyone back home and who I was racing as well um, but yeah I definitely wasn't expecting that that result um, by any means. That's amazing. Just not being familiar with the course and that has worked in your favour. Yeah, and I think that that's big though. I think I, there was a big learning curve for me and it was nice to have a learning curve with success at the end of that thing you should learn from mistakes instead. But I think to, to back my own race strategy, my own, my own uh, strengths and weaknesses, mm-hmm. I think is really important and not kind of be, uh, have your own race dictated by who's around you or, or necessarily the course or, or the environment and really kind of backing your own ability and what you need to do to race and that's something we definitely carry forward in all of our events. Is that a photo with Prince Harry after that? Yeah that was the part my mum was most excited about yeah. as well of all of that. <laughs> People love the world well obviously situations have changed yes. since then but that's again a whole other podcast whole we've other got about one. 10 to record I think <laughs> after this one. Um, okay so talking about training um, your coach Louise Savage who's you know, obviously an absolute legend. I'll just mm-hmm. have to, I'll give her a call. and I don't have a number, but I sound cool. <laughs> I'll give her a call and just say, just just don't educate her on any courses because that's nope. obviously a good omen. 100%. <laughs> um, she, yeah, as I say, she's a legend. What is that like? You two seem like a bit of a dream team. We've put a lot of work into being a really good, cohesive team, I think. And a lot of it is is credit to, to Louise. I think that a lot of, I think as someone who's, come from the same sport, same events as, as I now do and had so much success, I think it's so easy to 
have this idea of what that looks like and what that process looks like. And to you and I are very different as athletes. The one thing we have in common is we do the same events. That's practically it. I think Lou would line up for a race and she would win it because she wanted to, because she was the most competitive person. She was so fiery and she's definitely a, a win at all costs. She would do whatever it takes. And she's, um, I think when we think of an athlete, and that mentality, that is Louise Savage. She embodies every single part of that. And I don't. And it almost had me quitting the sport after the London Games. I didn't think I had what it took to be as successful as I wanted to be in the sport. And I, everyone around me was this kind of fiery, driven, competitive, wanted to, to beat who they were lining up alongside. And I couldn't switch my mindset to want those things. And it was Louise, despite everything she is and was as an athlete, who kind of helped me through that. And it was this kind of idea of we worked out who I needed to be as an athlete, what my processes were and what I required from her. And she's the one that kind of created a space for me to work out who I was as an athlete. I think because I started so young, I was just trying to emulate every single person around me. And so it wasn't until I was 18, 19, after my second games, that I really took the time to work out who I was as a person and therefore as an athlete. And she's the one that held that space for me and gave me every single support possible to work out who I was. And I think the best way to summarize it is we don't go into a race with plans to win. We don't necessarily set a, a time that we're gonna achieve, who we're gonna be, or you know, an order we wanna cross that line in. We set two to four really small goals. And if we can execute each of those things, I'm set up to run the best possible race. And if I run the best possible race and I bring everything physically, mentally, emotionally to the track or the road, I have the potential to be the best in the world on that day in that, uh, on that track. And so it's not about that final goal because I just don't have it in me. I think I'm just in awe of my competitors to a point that it frustrates Louise that I do this. Um, but we kind of break Because she wants the- you to own your own exactly space and how good you are yeah exactly yeah. and she definitely does that better than I do and does it for me better than, better than I do but so we, we break the race down instead and we kind of move through those steps and if I execute every single one of those and don't cross that finish line first it's not a fault on my part it's a credit to whoever did cross that line first because I gave everything that I was able to and that's why that 5,000 in Rio means so much to me because I did execute the perfect race every goal we set we achieved perfectly I just wasn't the best athlete on the track on that day and I'm completely at peace with that and I think that's the approach that we now have and it's in contrast to who Lou was an athlete but she's the one that helped me to to create that space. Yeah what a great outlook as well. Um, Did COVID affect you in a a good or or bad way? Both. I think in terms of, of actually racing so we're quite lucky to be an outdoor individual sport we were able to get a lot of our training still done we obviously didn't have gym access or um, access to our indoor training facilities, but I was still able to, I didn't have to take time off um, during lockdown, which is a blessing. Um, but I think that one of the hardest things to, I guess, um, for me to process is at a games, it doesn't matter how good or how fast you are. It just matters what order you cross that finish line in. And that's not really how most of us approach sport. I think that constant improvement doesn't lend itself to that that, that goal necessarily and yeah. so the world's previously we had quite a short turnaround between 2019 world champs from November to games in in August and so we were initially nervous about that turnaround it's hard to back up a world's to a games in only 10 months what happened at world championships though is I 
I won the 800 by the biggest margin that I've ever won a race in, in what would be a full Paralympic field. And so that 10 months suddenly became a huge advantage to myself because for my competitors to close that gap, it was going to take quite a big amount of work. And that kind of gave me a lot of peace of mind going into Paralympics. I think just your ranking does not matter is how you can actually execute a race. And that margin I think was, was significant. And that was kind of going to be a huge advantage to me going into, into Tokyo. And so that's kind of gone now. And I don't know how my competitors are racing. I don't know how I'm racing because I haven't raced internationally since 2019. So it's hard it's to kind time. of, it's a long time. So it's kind of hard to work out where I am. So on that part, the physical part is challenging, but I think we've also been able to take time to mentally work out how you want to approach sport. I think as athletes, we're very reactive to stuff. I think a good race or a bad race, you process it after it's done and you're putting yourself in a position to process it well, we just don't do because there's so many other things that kind of take priority over it. So we spent, I spent so much time this last two years in a room with my psych and my coach working out how to best be mentally prepared for for everything that's going to happen and being flexible and happy to change as things go. So I think in terms of that, that's an opportunity that we probably will never get again. So I think we definitely kind of capitalized on the time that we had. So it's definitely both. It's it's been good and bad. And I'm kind of looking forward to seeing how it all plays out. Given all of that and... I suppose the, the the positive is everyone's in the same boat. What what are the expectations? What goal are, are you setting for yourself over there? It's a big question. Um, you don't have to answer. I was about to give you my like standard like media answer don't of like do just do our best when we're our best. Sports <laughs> the real winner. Um, <laughs> I am going into the eight hundred as the current world record holder. Um, So that's obviously quite, I've never done that before. And it's kind of feeling quite similar to to how Com Games felt, where I think the 800 specifically, I think I would be devastated with a silver medal. Whether that is going to happen or not, maybe we'll all watch me race 100 in Tokyo and witness my heartbreak in real time. Like, I don't know how that's going to go. We'll all be on that journey together. But the 800, I definitely have uh, very high goals with my most consistent event. World record holder. Yes. Um, the 15 and 5,000 are, are hard because they're so tactical, so much of it. Anytime I've done well on those events, it's not been because I was the fastest or the strongest. It's because tactically I ran a smart race. And any 5,000, that's how the result plays out. It's who just races tactically the best. And so it's hard. we're also out of practice in that. So I don't know what these races are going to look like. So planning for them is, has been really challenging. And it's going to be something we do like in the village, I think, um, once we see everyone else kind of racing and how they're moving. So I don't know what those events are going to look like. And again, the marathon, I haven't done 42K since, um, yeah, November of 2019. So we'll see. <laughs> You'll be fine. I thought about it. You'll be totally fine. <laughs> you, you talk about the village. Are you? Ex- I know it'll look different, but excited to get back in there? I am. I think that you kind of go into this, um, this space where you're surrounded by so many people with a shared goal. And I think we're all, I think in, in our real lives, we're trying to balance every part of our lives. And for us, I think sport and training obviously takes priority, but you're trying to do everything else. And I think that once you're in that village, you can kind of take the time to just focus on your sport and that becomes everything for, for two weeks. And so I'm looking forward to, to that experience again and then being surrounded by, you know, so thousands of people who are just as driven, just as 
as I think there for the same reasons. And that's quite a unique experience, going to get to be surrounded by that. So I'm definitely looking forward to, to all of that. Is there anything that you pack? Is there any food that you need to take that, you know, say from Aussie food, you know, Milo or whatever that you can't leave home without? I like... I'm that person that travels with my coffee machine. I'm Your so embarrassed. It's like a, like a little Nespresso machine. Like it's not like I'm bringing. Um, but we've been told not to bring electronics because it might shut down the power in the whole tower. Yes. The thing. So I've been told specifically not to bring half my kitchen like I usually do. Um, <laughs> will they not have them? They or, will. But maybe not in your room. They, yeah, exactly. And I think. So you're definitely taking that. I'm. I've gone and tried to look online for ones that don't require power, like what kind of manual coffee machines. <laughs> I found a bunch of options. So I'm like, I was online the other day, kind of buying co- tiny coffee machines, like an AeroPress, yeah. which I now have. Um, but I, yeah, I kind of travel with um, basically everything I'm going to need day of routine. I think that's where I find a lot of calm on race days, doing mm. the exact same things in my process. So basically anything that can help to kind of make that run as smoothly as possible, I'll, I'll try and bring. What's that like at a massive event like an Olympics when you sort of head out into the stadium, you like go up what, the tunnel or whatever and you just look out? One of the most nerve-wracking things is you can normally see the track while the event before you is on. And I think in Quorum, Quorum is about 45 minutes and it's the most um, overwhelmingly stressful part. I think when you're warming up and getting ready, you can actively do stuff to distract yourself and kind of ground yourself in the present mm. moment. Once you're in quorum, that's all gone. You're also allowed anything to distract you in quorum, like no phones, no music, nothing. So you're kind of just there, surrounded by the women that you're about to try and race while they're all having the same experience, um, about to go out there. And then as you're about to go out on the track, you, you can't, you're kind of trackside while that last event is on. And watching that is, um, it's so overwhelming. And you kind of see the whole spectrum. You see someone who, who just won a gold medal at the Paralympic Games. And then you see someone who, who obviously, you know, is, is having their heart broken in real time as well. And you kind of, you see all of that and you don't know which one you're about to be in the next five minutes. So I think... It sounds terrifying. It is. It is terrifying. It is absolutely terrifying that moment. <laughs> um, we mentioned your mum. What, what are your family going to do? Because obviously no one can come over. What's, what's the story? Some people are planning little parties or to be together or, you know, what, what's the story, do you know? I actually don't know, to be honest. Um, my family's all in Perth and mm-hmm. so, and like thankfully the time zone works out really, really well for them to sort of watch stuff um, as it's happening. So, yeah, no, I know they're, they're all, my mum is devastated. She had her tickets booked. Yeah. She had her tickets booked before I was selected <laughs> on the team. She's been no ready before I've been ready. Um, so that, I know That's the sad part though, isn't it? That obviously yeah. everyone loves, everyone wants to go see their, their kids go. Definitely. Be, you know, Paralympians. Yeah. On the biggest stage. So my mum and one of my sisters were going to come. So obviously they won't now. But yeah, I think like having that support from back home is still, it still means the world. All right. Well, we, um, we like to ask to sort of wrap things up what you're most looking forward to when you land, what, do you know when you what date you fly over? Twentieth of August. Twentieth of August, of course you know it's etching brain, <laughs> uh, as it should be. Fair enough. Um, what are you most looking forward to about you know when you land? Could be anything. I'm, I'm honestly, I'm so looking forward to, to racing, to getting to do. I, I think what I love again. It's been so long since I know I talk about how stressed I get before I'm racing, and and I'm not looking forward to to that part of it but there is this moment when you're racing where it kind of feels like that's where I'm meant to be and everything falls into place and and I I think it's one of those moments where you feel so in control of like your body and your mind and it's this kind of it's unlike any other experience and you don't get it in in training or in small races you kind of only get it those 
big, you know, important kind of meets and I haven't, you know, gotten to, to feel that in a really long time and I'm, I'm really looking forward to to that. But I honestly, I, I'm just so looking forward to racing again. I, I definitely miss that part of my life. I think that when it was taken away uh, from all of us, I think we would tell ourselves as athletes that we're well-balanced people and that sport isn't our entire identity. I've been lying to myself <laughs> for like 13 years. It is 100% my identity. So <laughs> I'm looking forward to getting to do that again. Well, it is your identity, but it's plenty more as well because you are such a spokesperson as well, as well as Cover Girl and Barbie. Um, what, what do you think? The thing is, you're you're so young still, and got so much more to go, obviously. Um, but do you have an idea of what you want to be known for? What you'd like your your legacy to be? I guess. I, I think that Australia has the potential to be one of the most authentically accepting places of every single person. And there is so much work to do in that space. And I think that work is gonna take individual voices to really help shape what that looks like. And we have so far to go, and I don't know if it will happen in my lifetime, but I would like to have some impact on that landscape. I would I would love for this to be a place where someone can grow up and, and lean into every aspect of, of who they are as a person. Well, you're very much already doing that. Um, thanks so much for chatting to us at such a busy time. Wishing you the best of luck. You just do the training and then as the good omens, either don't learn the track or have a big fat cry <laughs> before, before you go out and race and you'll be fine, okay? I I've will done probably all the do both those things. <laughs> well, we look forward to seeing uh, your every success over there. Thank you. Thanks. thanks. Thanks for listening. Be sure to subscribe to hear more incredible stories from our athletes going for gold at the Tokyo 2020 Games. You can see full coverage of the Tokyo 2020 Olympic and Paralympic Games on 7 and 7 Plus.